Okay, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. Hey, everybody, welcome. We're in the uh, Fox Business Studios here in D.C. Oh, wait, wrong show. Actually, here, we're live here at Disrupt TV. Welcome, everybody. We're going to do some quick introductions, and we're going to go in our traditional reverse order, and everyone's going to talk a little bit about where they're calling in from, what they're going to talk about today. We're going to start with Jonathan Reichenthal. What's going on today? Where are you calling in from? Hey, Ray. It's great to be back on, by the way. It's lovely to see you and Vala. Uh, I'm in just south of San Francisco, actually, in Silicon Valley here. And today uh, I'm going to be talking with my co-author about a brand new book we're bringing out, which is about smart cities and it's targeted for children. So I can't wait to share more about that with you. Great. And Brett, where are you calling in from as well? Hi. Yes, thank you for having me here. I'm Brett Hofstadt calling in from Sacramento, California, and uh, honored and thrilled to be working with Jonathan on our book, Exploring Smart Cities for Kids, an activity and coloring book. Woohoo, smart cities for kids. All right. And we've got Jody. Where are you calling in from? What are you talking about today? Yeah, I'm Jody Glidden. I'm calling in from Miami. And uh, we're going to be talking about how we're applying AI to revenue. Oh, sorry. We got a little sound glitch here. We'll see what's going on, Jody. Um, we'll see if we can fix that for a little bit, um, your uh, scheduling. And then, of course, we got Aaron. Aaron, what are you calling in about? What's new with you? Welcome. Hey, Ray, hey, Ray, out here in uh, in the Valley, good to see you. I will talk about anything you want to, but uh, certainly the future of content management in the cloud is, uh, is what we're pretty focused on, but whatever you want to uh, to go into, you and Vala. Awesome. Hey, wonderful. Thanks for having her here with my awesome co-host, Vala Ashar, our producer, L. Please do the honors, and we'll kick off the show. And uh, while she's doing that, thanks to Robots and Pencils and IFS for sponsoring everybody here on Disrupt TV. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Mala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business and on a world book tour of his new book that's going to officially launch July 13th, but you can pre-order now, disrupting, oh, sorry, everybody wants to rule the world, surviving and thriving in a world of digital giants. By the way, Ray was in Boston a couple of days ago. Thanks. That was an awesome book launch. Got a chance to be in person with 20 CXOs, and that was great. You can follow Ray and watch him on Technology Business TV. He's on Bloomberg, Fox Business, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, and he's also a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top features to follow on Twitter at our RWA and G0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, Vala. So great to see you again. It's so nice to see you in the flesh uh, a few days ago. Vala, after everyone knows, is Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce. Uh, but more importantly, he's the also the, he's also an author, The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. And of course, executives around the world are listening into every one of his insightful and inspirational tweets. He's also a keynote speaker, and you can see him on business TV around the world. Uh, and of course, catch his ZDNet column. But it's not about us. It's been about our awesome guests throughout the years. And we have a really awesome guest. Um, who do we have today to Kick it off, Bala. We have three extraordinary CEOs with us, and it's our privilege to have Aaron Levy, Chief Executive Officer, Co-Founder, and Lead Magician at Fox, which he launched in 2005 with CFO and Co-Founder Dylan Smith. Aaron is visionary behind the Vox product and factual strategy, incorporating the best of secure content collaboration with an intuitive user experience suited to the way people work today. Aaron leads the company in its mission to transform the way people and businesses work so they can achieve their greatest ambitions. He's one of the best follows on Twitter at Levy. By the way, just think about what an early adopter, Levy, L-E-V-I-E. -E. Welcome, Aaron, to Disrupt TV. 
Hey, thanks. Uh, good to uh, good to be here. Appreciate the uh, the time today. Thank you. We are so excited to have you. I'm. You founded the company in 2005. Could you have imagined a pandemic like this would happen? And all your ideas are totally tested at the same time. Let's talk about like what your vision was like in 2005, and which ones came true, and which ones were like surprised you since 2005. Yeah. Well. Well. Here. Here's the thing. We got two things right. Um. Uh. Well, we, and we got one thing right and one thing wrong. Um, our vision was we we thought the future was that you were going to work from anywhere, and that's the part we got right. The part we got wrong was we thought it was going to be because of BlackBerry devices. So uh, what, we, <laughs> what, what we ultimately discovered uh, when we uh, when uh, you know as time went on was the growth of mobile and iPhones and iPads and cloud computing and all of these massive waves of transformation led to a new IT architecture that I think we all have benefited from in the past 18 months in this work from anywhere world. So while we had the vision that you should always be able to work on any device and from anywhere, we certainly never would have imagined in a million years that a pandemic would be the thing that would, would cause that to ripple through the entire planet. But um, here we are, uh, you know, certainly 18 months after uh, after the initial you know wave of the, the pandemic. And I think we've seen longstanding business transformation and change that is now going to be with us forever. Um, and, uh, and we think this is going to be obviously incredibly impactful for the future of work, the future of digital transformation, the future of business models. Uh, and at Box, we obviously want to help all of our customers be able to manage their most important data and content in the cloud. Our research team at Disrupt TV looked at 10 years of your tweets in preparation for this meeting. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to, can I, let me just apologize for that team uh, for uh, whatever exercise they had to go through. No, but, but some but, of the best I, tweets in the business. I, I, hands down, and I'm an avid follower. And you've been talking about digital transformation for a decade before people even use digital transformation. In fact, in 2015, you one of your tweets, one of my favorites, says adding software to a broken process doesn't make it digital. The biggest challenge is reimagining the process, not writing the software. This was six years ago. Now, a couple of weeks ago, you tweeted. We're about to have a renaissance in enterprise software and IT. Every CIO I've chatted with in the past couple of months is embarking on significant digital transformation right now. Last year, the dam broke and it's a tidal wave. Six years after, and you were talking about business model, not just modernization. Can you talk about digital transformation as you speak to the biggest brands, biggest companies, biggest CXOs, are they really involved in new business model innovation? And I, I suspect the answer is yes. And what does that mean for yeah. a company that you've described as the content cloud? Yeah. What does that mean for Box and your customers? Well, 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 first of all, if you tweet enough things, a few of them might be right. So that's, that was the- that, No, 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 go, go for it. You're a thing. historian and you've been very <laughs> accurate. Yeah, very so if I, just, if I get enough following out there, you'll be able to look back and find ones that, that seemed insightful. Um, but uh, I don't know. This is a, this is sort of a funny funny situation trying to talk about digital transformation with with Ray and Valo because you guys obviously are uh, you know front and center in this with uh, with so many businesses globally and uh, and obviously Ray, your new book covers this at a, I think in a in a you know through a prism that is uh, is is pretty significant for uh, for every industry to be thinking about. But you know from our perspective, um, what what we tend to find in Valo to to the you know that, that initial kind of prompt is you know if you go back five or ten years ago, what what the, uh, the the thinking of digital transformation was, let's take our retail stores and let's build a, an e-commerce you know, website on top of that. Let's take our, um, uh, let, let's take our car company and make it so you can you know, buy cars digitally. 
let's take our CPG brand and make sure that, that you can you know, have a mobile app. And all what we, what we did was we just kind of created more menus to, to buy things and, and learn about things and, and, you know, and get access to information. We didn't fundamentally re-engineer the actual service that gets delivered to the customer. And so, you know, obviously Ray, you've written a ton about this, but what Uber did was they said, well, you don't even need to own the car. And what we've seen from companies like Netflix is they said, well, you don't even need a cable subscription. We're gonna reinvent how we get content to you. We're gonna reinvent your, uh, the, the way you do uh, ride sharing. We're gonna reinvent the way you do hospitality. And that's obviously disrupted so many different industries. And so I, what I think the past year and a half has shown us is, you know, previously this was sort of an academic intellectual exercise of, oh, digital transformation, change your business model. And what we saw over the past year and a half was the companies that were able to thrive during the pandemic were ones that had previously re-engineered their business to be thinking about a digital first business model, including the underlying processes that they had to go and execute. So the banks that grew faster, the media companies that were able to better serve their customers and grow, the life sciences organizations that were able to have modern distribution um, uh, channels and development methodologies. These were the companies that were able to get ahead. And obviously the tech sector were massive beneficiaries of that digital first wave as well. So what I think we're seeing and, um, and going forward is I think organizations from the CEO on down uh, are gonna be rethinking fundamentally what business are you in? How do you re-engineer re the underlying processes to get whatever value you offer to consumers out to your customers. And software is clearly going to be the delivery method for a lot of that value. And at Box, as the content cloud, what we wanna do is help any of those business processes that deal with unstructured content. So if you're a media company and you wanna go and produce a film, think about how much media content you have to be able to collaborate around. If you're a life sciences company and you wanna re-engineer the way that you do clinical drug trials or clinical research, all of that data has to be able to be managed and secured. If you're a bank or an insurance company and you wanna be able to onboard clients and get documents signed digitally, you wanna be able to re-engineer that process. So our platform is meant to go help these companies be able to transform their business processes around content. You know, this is so true. And, and what you're actually talking about is the fact that content is the heart of this digital transformation. When you tie it to a process, you tie it to an action, you get something very powerful on the other end. This isn't a file sharing company. This is right. a lot, something bigger than that. Now you've been making acquisitions in the space as well to do that, right? And some of those acquisitions show us kind of a roadmap of what your vision is because now you've got the content and you wanna go take actions. You guys acquired a signature company. Yep. What's that all about? Yeah, so, so uh, Ray, I, uh, sometimes um, it's not good for people to remember so many things. So if we could, if we could get rid of the file sharing part of our history, that'd be great. And, uh, and, and I don't know anything about that. Exactly, thank you. I don't you, know anything about you. that. Um, so you've obviously watched the evolution uh, you know, from a front row seat and, and we've appreciated uh, all, of the, uh, all of the attention and collaboration over the years. And, and you're exactly right. So we started the company to make it easy to access and share files from anywhere. But what we found was that there was a, a bunch of adjacent processes that really are fundamental to your content. So workflow automation, data security and compliance, e-signatures, being able to publish content to teams and departments, being able to have APIs that let you embed content into any application. So we've been dramatically expanding our platform so we can go and solve the complete life cycle of what content moves through from the moment that you create it to when you ultimately need to retain it for any kind of longstanding um, uh, you know, kind of governance policy or, or, uh, or, or, uh, or, you know, regulatory requirement. So we've been making acquisitions that will help us with each of the stages 
in that life cycle, as well as doing our own organic development. Earlier this year, we acquired an e-signature platform. This is one of the leading end user uh, disruptors uh, in the e-signature space, and that will be launching as box sign this summer for all of our customers. So we wanted to have a disruptive offering in the market where box sign will be available, included for all of our business customers in their subscriptions. So that's something that's gonna be coming out soon. But we also have a pretty exciting roadmap around where the future of collaboration is going or the future of intelligence around content. If you think about we, right now, when the world works with their data and their, their files, you're emailing files back and forth, or you're putting files inside of a network file share, or you're sending data through other means, you're not getting any intelligence or any insights from your content. So you don't know what marketing asset is performing the best or what sales collateral customers are responding to or what suppliers or partners are working with your information. So we think there's an all new era of analytics and insights and intelligence that you can generate from your information to be able to actually get more value from your data. So we fundamentally believe that the world runs on content, businesses are powered by their content, and we are building the content cloud to help companies operate in a modern way. I think it's a beautiful strategy. I think that what Box enables companies to do is deliver value at the speed of need. I think when you talk about these acquisitions, whether it's Box Sign or Box Relay, you're creating a frictionless environment where insights can be shared in real time so you can add value to your stakeholders when they need it at that moment of truth. And I believe that the ability for your company to do that is the strong emphasis you and your leadership put on design and simplicity. I'll go back to something you tweeted. Enterprise software design has always traditionally led consumer technology by years. Now we're regularly seeing enterprise software that is more thoughtful and simple than the consumer pace. We're still early, but this is an incredible trend. Talk to us in terms of why design is so important yeah. as you create a, 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 the depth and breadth that Box now offers to clients. Yeah, well, well, it's funny when Ray and I met probably about 100 years ago um, <laughs> uh, in, uh, in in sort of the, uh, the the dark ages of enterprise IT and, and enterprise software. Um, you know, we, we talked about this idea of consumerization of IT and the future of enterprise software, and and you could start to see like like we, we there were inklings. We were on the cusp of of some new ideas emerging in the enterprise you know realm. You had David Sachs building out Yammer. We were seeing some interesting, you know, new approaches to consumer-oriented enterprise software. And the, the general theory was dead simple. Why is it that in our personal lives, we get to work with amazingly simple technology on your iPhone? 2007, and, yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, so, you know, you're on your iPhone, you have, you have Facebook, you have YouTube, and none of these, none of these technologies require any thought. They're, they're dead simple to use. And then you go to the enterprise and you're in ERP systems and, and HR systems and workflow <laughs> tools where you have to have you know user manuals and you have to have training and it just made no sense. And so the theory was eventually these worlds are gonna converge and we're gonna use the same design principles from the consumer software realm and we're gonna bring those into the enterprise. Now, it took probably about 15 years longer than I had thought for that to actually become a ubiquitous concept but I believe we're very much in this new renaissance where we are all going to expect consumer experiences from all of our software, which will mean that the way that you run an enterprise software company is completely different than what we did in, in the 2000s or the, uh, and, and the 90s. And so we, you know, Box is just one example. All we do is hire consumer designers for our enterprise software. So our, our design team, as an example, would probably never have worked at another enterprise software company. 
but it's because we are we are building simple software for users that is incredibly powerful on the back end for the enterprise. That is what the future of design, that's what the future of consumer-oriented enterprise software is going to look like. And so what you have to do is build for the user, even though what you're really doing is, is ultimately selling to the enterprise and building an enterprise-grade platform. Uh, and it's that duality that we think makes enterprise software so much more exciting going forward. That's a winning strategy, 100% agree. 100%. Now, we're definitely seeing a big shift and it's not just in terms of your types of customers, but also what they're trying to do in digital transformation. So if you were to rethink where digital transformation is going, what you think companies and businesses are trying to accomplish, what do you say that what's different from even just five years ago? Yeah, well, I think, um, I think, you know, and, and Ray, just to, again, give it another shout out to your book. I think the, um, I think fundamentally you have to, you have to uh, not think about it as you're building digital interfaces as your digital strategy. What you're doing is you're reinventing your business model and your underlying value to your customer. Digital just happened to be the, the sort of shortest path between consumers and whatever your product and service is, but digital enables you to change what that underlying product or service ends up being uh, for the end client. And so we work with a lot of our customers to help them reimagine what is the underlying value proposition that you want to be able to have. If you're a bank, what are you trying to do in terms of create you know, greater access to financial information and, uh, and, and wealth information for your clients? If you're a life sciences company, what you're really trying to do is accelerate the collaboration on critical drug research so you can get new products to market faster. If you're a government, what you're what you're trying to do is, is dramatically uh, improve your access to um, uh, services and information to citizens. So again, rethinking what is what are you in the business of doing? This is sort of a Clayton Christensen-esque you know, question of like, what is the job to be done? And then how does digital accelerate your ability to deliver that ultimate value proposition or that job? And I think it's causing a lot of industries to rethink what is the job to be done? You know, Disney, is sort of, I think, you know, one of the quintessential examples of a modern um, company that has disrupted themselves. What, what they, they did not see digital as a threat to them. They pivoted digital as an offensive move to say what we're really in the business of is entertaining as many people on the planet as possible. And digital is an opportunity to accelerate that vision as opposed to a disruptive uh, force in our, in our business. And now you can see all of the other media companies effectively employ the same strategy that Disney has pursued. So I think you're gonna to start to see, again, a lot of rethinking of what business are you really in and how does digital help you accelerate the delivery of that, uh, that job to be done for your customers. And obviously, you know, at Box and at Salesforce and so many other uh, leading platforms, we're gonna be in the business of creating the platforms that can help customers be able to go and accelerate those visions uh, in, uh, in their markets. Yeah, and many of these platforms you referenced are gonna be powered by machine learning, and derivative sciences under the AI umbrella. Many people may not know the extent of Box's capabilities when it comes to machine learning. Can you talk about how you're directing your company to really become an intelligent content cloud, delivering insights in real time to stakeholders and what that means for future for Box? Yeah, so let me, let me uh, I'll give you like this stark comparison. So imagine, you know, let's just go back 20 years just because it's the easiest um, kind of, you know, stark, stark comparison point. It, it, you know, 20 years ago, if you were to work with your files, you'd be working with your files in a network file share. You'd be accessing your data from, you know, a VPN. If you had to share a file, you'd be doing that over email. So think about all of those interactions. There's no telemetry. There's no, you don't get any feedback of what happened to your data, who accessed it, when did they access it, what did they do to that content? Now, fast forward 20 years, in Box, every single thing that you do with your file, we are able to track as an event that then you can correlate to be able to improve that business process or to be able to give you insights and analytics about your data. 
or in the case of a security team, to be able to alert the security team if there's some unusual pattern of access to your data. So imagine, you know, now obviously ransomware attacks are a significant threat to businesses. Imagine you start to see an unusual amount of uh, data either being moved around or modified uh, or manipulated. Wow. That would be an alert that would then be identified by the security team at a much faster rate than, than what you would have been able to do previously when you didn't have that kind of telemetry. So we're in a new era where we can actually help uh, create all of this knowledge and, and, and be able to connect the dots between the different events that are happening with your data so you can make better decisions, so your business processes can be more fluid and, and more seamless, and then ultimately we can actually help you protect your content as well. So machine learning and you know uh, some degree of artificial intelligence ends up being incredibly important to transforming how we work with our content in the cloud. I love the potential of red team, blue teams using box enabled analytics in forensics to be able to secure an enterprise. It's, 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 it's a must have, right? yeah. it's, it's no longer a, a luxury. Uh, no. it, that's an incredible capability. Aaron, thank you so much uh, for being guest on Disrupt. It was uh, incredible insights and we look forward to uh, sharing your insights with our audience. Thank you so awesome. much. Awesome, appreciate it. Ray Vala, good to see you guys. Thank you, Aaron. All right, take care. Terrific, thank you. Uh, that was that was that was extraordinary, Ray. I don't know if you've got some wireless issues. Uh, I see a pseudo smiling Ray stuck on my screen. <laughs> but we're going to move forward uh, with our next guest. This is a show about extraordinary CEOs that are putting, as Steve Jobs would say, a dent in the universe. Our our next guest is uh, Jody Glenn, CEO of Interhive. Jody's co-founder, CEO of Interhive, founded in 2012. Interhive is the fastest growing B2B relationship intelligence and data management platform. The company was recently named to the Deloitte Fast 50 and Fast 500 list and was named the MarTech 2020 Breakthrough Award winner for best CRM innovation. Jody's an experienced business leader with startup tenacity, public company rigor with innovative passion for technology. Interhive is the fifth company Jody has been involved in founding and building with three successful exits, including Chalk Media, IC Global, and Scholars.com. Jody is passionate about products, machine learning, which we just talked about, we're gonna talk about more, automation, sales technology, mobile first social marketing, and course of engineering. You can follow Jody and other, again, we only bring CEOs that are awesome on Twitter on our show, <laughs> on Twitter at J-O-D-Y-G-L-I-D-D-E-N. Welcome Jody to the Shrub TV. Great, thanks, Vala. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, wow, that's quite an introduction. I, I've been looking forward to doing the show for a long time. Oh, awesome! Well, thank you for being on the show, and congratulations. Uh, you and your team just raised a hundred million, a hundred million dollars in your Series C, uh, uh, which is a significant, incredible milestone. Talk to us about the milestone and the excitement and the passion and vision you have uh, growing Interhive. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, I mean, it's we're, we've been a nine-year overnight success. <laughs> it's uh, we we took uh, a few years to, to really get off the ground because we had to build out this really extensive um, sort of underlying layer to make all of the AI work the way that we want it. But essentially, we think that in the future, uh, sales teams will need two types of systems. One is the system where you put all your stuff, the CRM. And then the system that makes all the salespeople reach their peak potential, gives them all the information they need and takes all the work off their plate. So that's what we've been working on. The $100 million is just a phenomenal thing for us because it's going to help us accelerate things so much faster. 
A lot of the research that I've looked at in the space of line of business and sales is how little time sales professionals are actually selling. Um, yeah. So much research, so much, you know, maintaining systems so that they can create a team sport atmosphere in terms of how they serve clients. Can you talk about yeah. what's, what is the business problem that Interhive is trying to address? Yeah, really. So, so you hear of the, the old adage, you know, should you work harder or should you work smarter? <laughs> you know, and, and really what they're saying is, under work harder, they mean, you know, are you putting in enough man hours? And in this, in the case of sales, it's like, are you putting in actually enough sales hours? Well, well, salespeople are extremely distracted because they're asked to, you know, go to a meeting, collect all the business cards in the real world or, or, uh, you know, alternatively in the digital world, but enter all those contacts in a, into a system, do the same thing with their meetings, with their deals, move things along through the pipeline. They, they have a job that's, you know, a third of the time data entry, and then the rest of the time they have to organize themselves, get smart and speak to customers. So it's really just not the most efficient way to go. What, what we do is we, we take all that work off their plate. We do it automatically using the system. Turns out machines are better at data entry than people are. And then the, the great thing about it is um, we can also bring them all the intelligence that they need. I don't know if we've all had these like frustrating experiences with, with sales interactions where, you know, one, one really easy example is you, you make a call, you, you know, talk to a salesperson about all of your experience, you know, everything that you're looking for, give them all your requirements. And they say, great, just hang on one second. And they transfer you to somebody else and you do it all over again. <laughs> you know, so I just think that um, we have the ability to bring all, all the things that people need for whatever type of selling job they have, all the intelligence about who you're speaking to, what that company is, are they in the news? Um, who in my company might know them really well, what deals I have going on and all the other things that salespeople are expected to know but why not just bring it to them in that actual selling moment? So right before they have a meeting, just as they pick up the phone when somebody calls or whatever the, uh, the thing might be. That's great. In real time contextual intelligence that's personalized, that's fast, that's relevant. Uh, every line of business can benefit from that. Certainly I ran services business for 10 years. I would love my agents to be ha have that same context because there's nothing more frustrating from a customer's point of view when you have to repeat yourself and you're, you know, you're impacted by friction in the process or friction and lack of understanding and insights to get to a solution as fast as possible. Uh, Ray, right. welcome back. <laughs> um, I'll follow up with a question and just, just uh, for continuity. Uh, you talked about machines being better, faster. I completely agree with you. When I think of algorithms, I think about it's your thoughts, your beliefs, uh, codify. So if there are biases that exist in your beliefs and if there are blind spots that exist, well, that's going to make it into your into your algorithms. And, and now you're doing things faster, but perhaps drifting away from your brand promise. So when we talk about AI ethics, which is a white hot topic because people are afraid yeah. of over automating and really drifting away from their brand promise and core values, what are your thoughts uh, coming from a CEO of a company that's absolutely an AI driven company? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. Um, we, we've been writing about the topic of AI ethics recently. It, it is a, a topic that people ask about a lot, but the issue I think is that when people don't design the, it's, it's not a problem with AI itself. It's a, a problem with how the, the algorithms are designed. So if, if you're saying that you want uh, the AI to basically focus on maximizing revenue at all costs, bad things will happen. <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of like the Terminator scenario, right? You, you have to, 
optimize for all of the goals that you want, including like, for example, we're working with companies, we're actually using our AI and our relationship graph to help drive not just revenue, but also diversity in organizations. So you can, uh, it, it turns out you can spot the high potential, uh, previously underserved uh, folks like females and, and other minorities, um, before they get to those executive levels, you can measure the connectivity between um, between those high potential people and the executives, and then you can you can use the AI to actually drive the right behaviors that you're looking for, like getting them together for for you know relationship building events, and that, as it turns out, is one of the best ways to drive diversity. So that's you know just an example of using AI to point people in the right direction. <laughs> Great example. You know, that's a great example. And, and when you think about what your capabilities are, not just the ability to actually deliver on AI ethics or, you know, put in the right testing that's in place, we typically think about AI ethics as, you know, having transparent algorithms, right? And then being able to figure out, you know, if, if those algorithms make sense, can we reverse them? Can we actually figure out where they go in the future and how do you build upon them? Um, that's just part one of all this, right? We're entering a world where it's it's not just the AI, it's analytics, automation, and AI all coming together. And when you That's think right. about that bigger vision of IntroHive, right, it, it's really about, do we have enough data to make that happen, right? Is it precise mm -hmm. enough, right? You think about it, like, you know, 90% accuracy in manufacturing, people are like, yeah, that might be okay. What about 90% <laughs> accuracy in healthcare? It's like, no, <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. good enough. Even though your doctor might only be 87% accurate, <laughs> who knows, right? So what are you doing with that? Like, how are you helping folks figure out how to get more data, how to build that into place where they don't have data? Because that's a lot of the problems. I mean, you've seen that a lot of the algorithms were built in the 80s, right? And there's finally got the data to even test them. I mean, that's the exciting part about where we are in AI. So yeah, how do you, you know, get them I, data to, to get yeah. Well, we have, um, it was a big problem with AI systems in general in the last, I'd say 10, you know, even five years ago where people were, they were, they had really great ideas. Um, like let's say picking the right opportunities to focus on, but there's so much missing data that the predictions as it turned out, were, were not very good. And, and we have this in every problem in AI. So a good, another good example is if you were dri driving this Tesla self-driving car and you covered half the cameras, you know, you're probably going to go off the road. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and and, um, and so what we focused on first, and as part of the reason why it took us a few years before we even made our first sale, was we focused on the data first. Like get all of the data filled in as much as you possibly can, and you can actually turn out use AI for that problem as well. Once you do that, all of a sudden, you know our software will work better, but any software will work better. It's just a matter of you can't get good predictions with bad data. Right. Right. Great point. Right. And, and I think the importance is uh, for advanced systems to not only be able to go from descriptive use of analytics with charts and graphs that do year over year, quarter over quarter comparisons to diagnosing why things happen, diagnostic use of analytics for forecast accuracy and win-loss data, and to ultimately using algorithms to make predictions, but then graduating to a point where you're prescribing the system is telling you what to do right now, prescriptive use of analytics. So a sales professional has you know, intelligent uh, methodology in terms of not only improving decision velocity, but doing things that we think historically has led us to a better win-loss uh, performance and, and accelerating the sales cycle. Where do you see the use of your solutions and having clean data in terms of organizations being able to get to a point where the system is helping and prescribing next best action for sales professionals. So even if they're spending only a third of their time, it's the right 
jobs to be done, as Aaron said, our prior guest, during that 33% that they're actually selling? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Like we we're big proponents of jobs to be done ourselves, and we we that's how we really do everything that we do. But um, what we do, we we really do it in two ways. Uh, once we had the data kind of solved for companies, we focused on looking at the trends using AI between uh, sales reps that are best performing versus sales reps that are say worst performing, <laughs> and and also the the deals that moved fastest. Uh, and the deals that moved slowest. And the we look at the, the patterns that, and machines can notice this an awful lot better than you know a great sales leader can go based on their gut. <laughs> and, and they can pick out the actual things. Like in our in our company, it might be, hey, did you know that at this stage of the sales cycle, you know, when you're selling into this type of customer, typically if you bring this certain person to the meeting, things move faster. Or maybe you should have brought the CFO. Um, you should be selling to the CFO by now or whatever the, the tip might be. Or maybe the person you're speaking to reacts better with phone, you know, a phone call versus email. But these are all the kinds of things that the system can notice because we're looking at broad swaths of data and complete data. You know, it's, it's amazing because the research that I've recently looked at says the, in the B2B sales motion, the average buying decision team is 10 strong. Uh, <laughs> this is average in B2B. And it, it, was, it was mid enterprise and greater the, the research I was looking at. So, so 10 strong, so that's 10 personas. There are folks like Ray and I, where, you know, as, as a former buyer practitioner, 90% of my buying process was independent research and collaboration with like minded executives. Maybe 10% I would be with a vendor where I would want a proof of concept or a demo. But frankly, it was the, it was a, the process was way at the, towards the end before I would engage with a vendor. So, it was a lot of independent research and collaboration. And there were other maybe traditional executives where you would go to events, you would speak to analysts and you know, you would, you would do a demo and so on and so forth. My mm -hmm. point is how do you, how do you deliver the right uh, value across the right channel at the right time to different, to 10 different personas who each have different buying process maps without machine learning and algorithms. Like I don't see how companies can manually do this it just no. doesn't. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand how no. you could do it. You know, and and you, you think of like in the '90s, people kept file folders, right? And somebody <laughs> would come in, and you'd be like, "Oh, okay, take the notes from the meeting, throw it in a folder." We use Lotus like One Two Three for like pipeline management. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just it was crazy. Uh, and now, you know, we divide things up so granularly. So marketing is is dealing with people at the start. They hand them over to a sales development rep, who hands it over to, you know. The, the field rep and so on and so on. There's so many points of contact on our side. Once they buy, they get handed over to a customer success rep if it's a recurring uh, deal and support folks. And somehow you need to make sure that the customer journey makes sense right. to the buyer and to each person in the buying group. So yeah, I think organizing it all professionally and with data makes sense and you shouldn't put all that burden on the salesperson. Right. So what do we do next? What's next for AI? I mean, what's the next big breakthrough people are trying to get to? Is it, is it a higher level of precision? Is it, you know, something that changes the way, you know, we look at, you know, how ethics are integrated? Is it just easier kind of like, you know, dynamic feedback loops that, that come into play or do algorithms self-generate themselves? Are we, are we at that point yet? Where these CNNs are actually doing that? Uh, what, what do you think? You know, I mean, you're smack in the middle of this. Yeah, I, I kind of feel a, a little bit like Aaron uh, previously that we we keep thinking we're almost there, and we still have like 
decades to go <laughs> because um, you know we're still uh, we're still kind of scratching the surface on just helping businesses uh, go as optimally as as they can. And at the same time, you have people uh, doing miraculous things, but really just scratching the surface in the medical field with mm. you know medical diagnoses. And and now they're getting to the point where those are more accurate than what the doctor can do or radiologist can do on their own. We're seeing the same thing in legal next where it's it's more complex but people are getting to the point where they're saying that they think that drafting of contracts and reading of contracts can even be done better by a machine in the future uh, and then the technology itself is is really getting uh amazing where we it takes us as you know as ai builders uh, it takes us less work in order to produce the same amount of of um performance and everything. So yeah, I'm really excited about what's going to happen over the next decade or two. If we can ingest enough, um, I'll call it, uh, I'm, I think I'm making up a word, but like firmographic data, if we get enough data about the businesses that exist across multiple sectors and we can calculate the TAM um, and we understand the social graph in terms of the leadership, the performance of the company, we can look at all the unstructured data on social, we can get tone sentiment, health, um, mm -hmm. and eventually really understand um, uh, uh, organizations that are targeted prospects and co potential customers. Do you get, do you, will the hunting function in sales eventually be automated extensively in, in the next decade? You know, I think about 80% of NASDAQ trading auto, auto, autonomously. <laughs> yeah. You know, not the relationship yeah. part where you absolutely need to have obviously us involved, <laughs> but, yeah, but the, the hunting bots. part, the prospecting yeah. part, how much of that do you think oh, in the next decade will be, will be automated? I, I, think, I think quite a lot. Um, mm. we, we look at uh, the way you drive revenue is really three things. So revenue, retention and relationships. And, and really, we think that in the future, so much of those first two categories are going to be automated and the mm -hmm. part that will be left will be the human element yeah. because, you know, that's that's the part that that makes the difference. It's, it's the part that the machine can't do. And really, it's the part that salespeople like to do. Yeah. And, um, you know, in the end, if all other things are equal, if if you have, um, you know, two people that are selling equivalent, let's say, accounting services or equivalent software that's roughly equivalent, then in the end, it's going to come down to the relationship. And uh, we think that, you know, having a broad amount of relationships like we all do sometimes, if you actually look at your phone and scroll through, you're probably going to mm -hmm. find a thousand to five thousand people in there. A lot that you probably haven't been keeping in contact with and some that might be in some really great places right now. Uh, it's, it's really difficult to make sense of that and just yeah. keep an eye on it. And people like machines can actually help you with the human element as well, which a lot of people overlook. Right. So I think the fear should not be that the person, the sales professional is going to be displaced by an AI algorithm. It's likely that if you're competing for jobs, you may be competing against a sales professional who's proficient using AI powered application. That's your biggest threat. So don't be in the game and not know how to leverage these intelligent tools to do your job. Because, you know, ultimately, I think the winning professional is the one that's very comfortable and understands that you can augment intelligence using applications that are powered by ML to do things faster and, and, and smarter. Yeah, that's yeah, that's no, right. That's if you look great. at like, you know, we had a long time ago, people used to talk about intelligence and there was really only one intelligence they were talking about at the time. And then maybe two decades ago, people started talking about, uh, about emotional intelligence and that mm -hmm. was really the human element and how we interact with people. 
And then, you know, lately people are talking about relationship intelligence. And what they mean by that is how our organization as a whole is interacting with the outside world. And are they bringing that human element to all of, you know, to people in the most optimal way possible? That's the part that really, I think you really need systems in order to organize you in order to re reach the potential that you can get. Jody, I love that relationship intelligence. I'm going to use that. That's great. That is absolutely yeah, the North no Star. One. Yeah. No, and, and then one of the things that you're as you're building upon that relationship intelligence, I mean, what's really exciting is that, you know, maybe my bot's actually interacting with Bala's bot. <laughs> and they build relationships we haven't even thought about. Ray's <laughs> looking to remove me with a bot on Disrupt at some point. When oh, no, know. I need a bot for uh, cloning at the rate I'm going at this moment. But yeah, yeah. No, but, but it's, it's definitely pretty, really exciting. Hey, one last question for you, Jody. And, and you know, of course, congratulations. Awesome funding round. Uh, lots of interest, uh, especially in this area. Um, What's the tech scene like for you, startup scene? Are you having trouble recruiting? Is it tough still? Is it tough finding enterprise salespeople? That seems to always be the challenge for everybody. Like what's hot and what are you recruiting and hiring for? What kind of folks do you need so when people can uh, reach out and we'll leverage this network to help you get some folks hired? Yeah, so we doubled our sales team in the last two quarters and we have to double wow. it again in the next two quarters. We're, we're growing at a phenomenal pace. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's really sales and marketing is one of our biggest focuses right now. We just really have to help get the word out. So if, if you know people uh, that you think are great, definitely send them our way. We're, um, we're, we're based, we have two headquarters. One is in Eastern Canada um, and I'm in Miami. Uh, there's, there's um, you know, really though, we, we take remote workers wherever they are. Uh, we're, you know, we say that our, uh, our headquarters is really in the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. How did I miss you in Miami? I was just there. I was just there for the Bitcoin conference. I just missed you on the tail end. So. Oh yeah, next time we'll be up for sure. So <laughs> Miami's really hot. Miami, lots of folks hot, are hot, moving hot, to Miami. Yeah, Mayor Suarez has done a lot for uh, for the region oh, for sure. It's just absolutely, been... absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, we got to get. How can I help? How can I help? Tell them to come by. So <laughs> we're here with Jody Glidden, CEO of Intro Hive. You can follow him on Twitter at Jody Glidden, and of course, a pioneer in AI, and definitely check him out. This company is on fire. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Jody. Thank you. Woo, wow, we are flying. Yeah. We got, to, we got yeah. these two awesome and of course, next. Of course, our cleanup hitter spot is with two extraordinary uh, individuals that are gonna expand our minds yet again. Uh, it's our privilege to introduce, I have two introductions, so bear with me, and I go as fast as I can. We have Dr. Jonathan Reichenthal, founder of Human, uh, Human Future and author, and Brett Hofstadt, engineer and author. I'll start with Dr. Uh, Reichenthal. He's the founder of Human Future, a global business and technology advisory, investment and education firm. Previous roles have included senior software engineer, manager, director of technology innovation. I met him and he was CIO uh, at uh, a, a city of Palo Alto in California. Uh, Dr. Reichenthal is recognized global thought leader, award-winning, too many awards to list. I only have 20 minutes. Uh, award-winning CIO uh, and uh, with incredible expertise in, in urban innovation, smart city sustainability, blockchain technologies, data governance, and much more. He is a popular uh, keynote speaker uh, his his last <laughs> book his last book was amazing. It's, I got so much great feedback on social media wow. with your smart cities book. And he, without even a tour, unlike Ray, who was going around the tour, Dr. Reichenthal's book tour in 2020, obviously because of the pandemic, was canceled. So he had an incredibly successful book, even without an opportunity to market it. So that tells you about the book. Uh, you can follow Dr. Reichenthal on Twitter at Reichenthal. R E I C H E N. 
T-A-L. Welcome, uh, to, uh, Jonathan. Welcome to Disrupt TV. And our, and our, and our, and our next uh, guest is Brett Hofstadt, engineer and author. Brett has a unique fusion of technology and creative background and achievements in aeronautic engineering, project management, corporate innovation in initiatives, and music composing. He, as a project manager at Boeing, he organized Shark Tank events to get executives as sharks to hear employees and, and foster innovation and culture of building there at Boeing. His first book published in 2014 was How to Be a Rocket Scientist. <laughs> he also wrote an authoritative book on using drones in civil engineering, where has become uh, most passionate about creating children's book on helping STEM and STEAM, the arts part of it, topics as evidenced by his partnership with Dr. Rackenthal to create a new book that's coming, uh, which we're going to talk about uh, on the show. He also has an upcoming book, Good Night Moon Base, which is scheduled for November. You can follow Brett on Twitter at Brett Rocket Sci, B R E T T R O C K E T S C I. Welcome, Jonathan and Brett, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, guys. Honor to be here. Yeah. Thank Thanks you. for your show. There's the book. It just pops up like that. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's amazing. I mean, hey, but here, here's the interesting thing. You guys have been talking about smart cities for quite some time. And, you know, and you've taken this, right, I mean, into another level, I mean, to the world of children's books. Uh, but before we talk about that, let's talk about what's going on in smart cities. I mean, were they accelerated because of the pandemic? Or were they in decline because of the pandemic? Could it be both? Like, tell us what happened. And I'd love to hear from your point of view. Yeah, no, great to be on again. Thanks for all the plugging of this uh, new book. <laughs> um, you know, we definitely saw a downturn in investment and activities around smart cities during COVID. But I think we also learned about the importance of cities and the importance of things like fast internet, right? Um, and, and so now as we begin to be hopeful, we emerge out of this crisis, uh, the focus is back on. And in fact, what I'm seeing as I work with cities around the world is an acceleration. Uh, you know, it's, it's now a cliche, but it's also applicable in government. We, we've seen, you know, uh, in, in 10 months, 10 years of digital innovation in government, wow. uh, really rapid adoption of cloud solutions for the first time. Very happy to hear that. Rapid adoption of video, of course, uh, and a whole range of new innovation uh, that can help cities operate under, you know, all sorts of all sorts of conditions. What I'm really excited about actually is some of the ways that mayors are thinking about redesigning their cities. Mm -hmm. And I wanna just tell you one quick story. This is a really great one. Um, you're, you're likely very familiar and you may have visited the Champs-Elysees, which is the main avenue down uh, through sure. Paris. And you know it's a beautiful street, it's got, it's got trees, got fancy cafes and stores and things. Um, and uh, what, what, what's happened though with, the, with this street, just like so many very popular streets around the world is there's a lot of pollution, a lot of noise, a lot of traffic, some accidents, it, there's difficulties. So the mayor working with a number of teams has said, we're going to transform the Champs-Elysees and they're going to transform it into what's called an urban garden, right? So they're basically going to make roads, a, a sorry, cars, a very small part of this street. It's mainly going to be green areas, lots more trees. There's going to be plants. And even more interesting, there's going to be vegetable gardens that people can work yeah. on. Um, yeah. So so this is going to happen over the next uh, four, five to six to seven years to be completed. And if you look at the drawings and the, and the vision, it is going to transform Paris. That, to me, is what the smart and sustainable city movement is beginning to look like. That's fantastic. 
So how, I'm, I'm curious to know how the conversation started uh, with you and Brett in terms of expanding the knowledge about cities to include young readers yeah. <laughs> and why that's important. Well, I'll give credit to Brett. He approached me, so I'm going to let him answer that question. <laughs> okay. Well, so I'm, I've been a fan of advocate of smart cities as, along with all the related technologies, Internet of Things, autonomous vehicles. I really believe uh, we need to transform our cities and our world to take advantage of these technologies and make them serve people for good. Uh, so, and I heard about Jonathan through his book, Smart Cities for Dummies. So I was a fan of that. There it is. Yep. And uh, so this has been on my radar for a long time. Ever since I had started making children's books about different STEM topics, I thought smart cities would be great to do. And now I found Jonathan with his smart cities book. I said, this is, if there's one guy to do this with, he would be the perfect guy to do it. So I reached out to him on LinkedIn and uh, yeah, he can tell then his experience with his first book about how, you know, why he thought this would be a great idea. Absolutely. And when you do that, Jonathan, when we talk about your, your incredible book, uh, which is foundational to the next book, uh, focused on activities for kids. Uh, I, so as part of my, um, uh, uh, I don't want to say giving back, but because I enjoy it so much, I talked to a lot of students, um, universities um, in the Boston area and, and throughout the states, uh, you know, probably 50 talks throughout the year to different institutions. But my hardest is when an elementary school in Roxbury in Boston invited me to speak at the Timothy School Middle School to a bunch of nine, 10, 11 year olds. <laughs> and I realized I can't use jargon, even like, mm. even like marketing mm. you know, or, or, or CRM or, you know, just, just you know. The, so I, it was so challenging for me to spend an hour with these kids because I really to, I had to apply a filter to all yeah. the, and, and you just don't you realize how much jargon and business acronyms you use. <laughs> so when you're going, when you and Brett are partnering, you're trying to, de, you know, decompose this or bring the greatness of this book to a younger. It's, it's, I'm assuming it's difficult. Although Brett's an expert in this area, so I'm sure he goes <laughs> to you. But, but can you talk a little bit about that as well? Because you know, it's it's the the heart. My hardest talk was being in front of a bunch of middle schoolers. Yeah, yeah. And they won't let you get away with BS. No. They'll call you out. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah that's for sure. I, I love that. Uh, so two two parts, two questions here. One was, you know, building on what Brett said. Uh, we, I, I thought it was important based on his proposal. I was flattered to be asked and thrilled to work with uh, Brett. Um, you know, the book was addressing adults, my, you know, Smart Cities for Dummies. Sure. I had learned, by the way, uh, anecdotally from lots of people that their kids love the book too. This was yeah. a surprise. Um, but look, the, the, the sort of bigger, more meaningful thing for us is that we want to start kids thinking about things like uh, recycling, things like waste management, right. clean energy. We, we, we think it's important uh, that they have uh, more fun learning in that area. Now it aligns really well with uh, many national, uh, you know, or I should say regional curriculums. We've learned that. Um, so it's complementary to the work that parents and, and teachers uh, do. Now to your second question, which is about words, and we're, we discovered something interesting. So we wrote the book and we, we try to be as careful as we could be to make sure it was talking to at the language of, of children. Um, and then we had a number of teachers review it, and that's very important. Oh, terrific. And um, 
the, the overwhelmingly they loved it, but they gave us some really constructive feedback. And a lot of it was about the words. You were absolutely right, Vela. And that we ended up writing now, creating this rather elaborate glossary. <laughs> so anytime there's a word that may be unusual, we reference it. You think, for example, that the word innovation comes up many times in the book. Kids don't actually know what the word innovation is. And, Many and adults don't know what innovation is. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Good so point. True. Um, wow. yeah, there'll, awesome. be, there'll be uh, fun learning for adults in the book, too, probably. Yeah, just like, I, just like, yeah. It's a good compliment way. for his uh, other, his Smart Cities for you, Dummies you've book. You've written yeah. the book for so many levels, right? And mm -hmm. and I think the activities, what's interesting about it is the way you set up the activities, it actually allows the parents and the kids to work with each other to go out and, and see what's happening. And I think that's a very, very powerful element of what you guys have done in the book. Um, so are schools adopting it? Is this a, is a way to get this into curriculums? Are people starting to look at it? Are there like lessons plans that are happening there? <laughs> Brad, do you want to take well, that? Well, we, we would love for this to benefit teachers and students in schools. And we do, as Jonathan mentioned, uh, there are actually city and community units in, in grade school levels for kindergarten, first and second grade. So we, we feel, we really hope this would be a perfect supplement for those units. Um, so we would be happy to talk with teachers to find out how this could help their, their classrooms. And so I encourage them to go right here to our website smartcitybook.com slash kids. They can get in touch with us there. And then we'd love to have a conversation and we'd love, I'm sure I speak for Jonathan, you know, to find a way to provide bulk copies of the book, you know, for districts or for homeschoolers, whoever might be out there. Will you, will, will you complement the book with digital properties on this website? Like if, if, if you find that you have a community of young readers, uh, will there be like the word of the week on your website where they can continue to learn about these uh, big fancy words that adults use <laughs> that they'll be exposed to in, in, in later years in schools. Uh, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, a vibrant website that can help keep the community engaged and, and sharing uh, as they read your book? Yeah, uh, so we, we we're thinking about that a lot, and we have some initial ideas. Uh, the focus right now is on the book, of course. Yeah, get the book out, right. the, Yeah, <laughs> um, if you go to our smartcitybook.com forward slash kids, uh, it's really right now just a landing page, and you can sure. register and learn some minimum things. But the minute the book comes out, which is you know a few weeks away, sometime later in the summer, uh, that will convert to a, a fully fledged uh, you know environment over time, and we love what you're talking about, it's very much aligned with what we're thinking about in terms of additional exercises and, and deeper dives on the topic. Um, you know, to the extent that we can engage kids and parents, uh, you know, as you probably can guess, that's complicated, um, but we're, we're not shy about those things. Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, like everything else today, we're, we're not just building a single book. I, I think our goal is to, is to actually create an ecosystem a number of learning uh, experiences. Uh, so that really is the bigger picture. Can we can we get kids up to speed on this topic? Yeah. And you know, maybe we're talking about future leaders and, and and children who think really differently about the kind of world we want to live in, not the world that we do live in. That's awesome. My eleven-year-old is looking forward to the read. He just graduated from elementary school, and he was um, recognized as likely to be president of a nonprofit organization. That's, <laughs> that that's what, that's how, that, so, uh, so I thought that was pretty cool. So anyway, he's looking forward to the read. 
Oh my goodness. Uh, so it's gonna be great. It's gonna I appreciate you know, there's, you guys there's gonna be books. some future congressmen that said, like, yeah, yeah, I read this book when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, it's just you know, exploring amazing? smart cities book is pretty amazing. What are we gonna do? So, but hey, let's let's <laughs> read some passages from this thing. I, I think you're gonna this is gonna be a bestseller. I think we launched around <laughs> the same week. I'm 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 scared. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. Let's put in a different category. I'm not sure how many children are gonna read everybody wants to rule the world. Reading uh, Jonathan's book, it's, 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 it's <laughs> so. well, we've, we're going to have Brett read a, 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 one of the rhymes, and then I'll read one. But I did want to give you a little background of what the rhymes are related to. Sure. So, okay. um, a quick story: when when we were putting the book together, doing the initial drafting, we had sort of more of a narrative, like it was going to be, you know, uh, very much on the left side of the page. You know, the reason here, solar power is important because you know. And one day, I was looking at our entire narrative and, and I, I just had this idea what would happen if I rhymed one of them made it into a rhyme so I did it it was hard I'm not used to doing that so I talked to Brad and I said what, what do you think he read it and so that's kind of has potential we ended up rhyming the entire book so you learn but the rhymes are a little bit funny but informative and then on the right side we have activities so you've coloring you've mazes connected dots cryptograms um, you name it it's it's the stuff that kids kids love so what we're going to share with you now are just a couple of the rhymes. So, so Brett, did you want to take yeah. one? That's great. Yeah. And so just to emphasize what I love now, what this book has turned into is really two books in one. It's a story with a narrative that goes through the history of cities, in fact, and cities today, and then smart cities, the cities of the future with activities along the way. So uh, we hope that this will be a book that people and kids and families can enjoy for a long time, you know, more than once, even after the activities are done. So, all right, so here's one from the early part of about the origin of cities. Cities are different from villages and towns. You're unlikely to hear farm animal sounds. Cities have many more people and take up lots of space. Look out the window. Is that your neighbor's face? <laughs> How's that? I haven't, I haven't heard it out loud before. On TikTok. This is awesome. It's awesome. That is so cool. Right, you take so, the next one, Jonathan. Here's another one. That was actually a nice, funny one. I loved, I loved that yeah. you did that one, Brett. Uh, here's a little bit more serious, but also uh, a bit of fun. The, the, the rhyme's called Technology to the Rescue. Uh, sensors, smartphones, and various computers. These are technologies that are defining our futures. Technology can be good or bad. Depends on where you sit. In our smart city future, let's make sure that's a benefit. Wow, cute, right? <laughs> this is really good. Oh what, what, a creative, what a creative approach, knowing that the retention is far greater when you can actually create the narrative with rhymes. Ray, you should have thought about that. You guys, maybe, you guys yeah. have raised the bar. Whoa. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's a kids' book version of your book coming up, Ray. <laughs> what do you think? Kids oh, rule the world. Oh we'll have to re-engineer. Completely transfer that one. What no, is, this is great. Is, this is great. Wow. So, by the way, it's so a scoop. About, this is a scoop for you guys. You're the first media that we are on talking about the book. So, so we, oh, we, love, we love you guys. Yeah. Oh, we're gonna be playing yeah. this forever. No, really, so, truly a privilege. Thank you. So, so thank you. So, yeah. in the book, right? When you think about this, right? Like, where, where can folks? Where are we? Is it going to be available? Are you publishing? Like, what's the release date? What, what should we know about? How can this? you buy it? Where? Do you, okay, where you have your website, it? so smartcitybook.com. Kids, that's where you go. I suspect. Right. Yeah. Just uh, recommend people go to our website, smartcitybook.com/kids. 
and you'll sign up to know when it's published. We have a target date. It'll definitely be in late late summer. So we're thinking now end of August, maybe early September, and it will be available on Amazon. Uh, we have plans to have it published in other formats and venues. And actually, maybe John can, can say this, the interest even from the previews and excerpts people have seen so far has been so good. We are talking with people to have it published in foreign languages already. So wow. Spanish will be wow. first probably. And there's uh, people across the world that are interested to have it for people in their country. Okay. Good luck rhyming it in different languages. That's <laughs> yeah, awesome. <man. laughs> that's <right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. Wow, what a great holiday uh, gift. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun, it's family oriented with activities, it's educational. I think you've hit all the check marks. So that's terrific. Well, we're, yeah. we're certainly looking forward to it. and. Uh, I, I, again, I, we've got two anxious readers, my son and I, for sure, looking forward to sh reading and sharing. Um, uh, so, so uh, Ray, go ahead. Sorry. I'm, I yeah, no, I was going to say, this is amazing. Folks, check out the book. Um, we're here with Jonathan Reichenthal, founder of Human Future and author, and of course, Brett Hofstadt, engineering author. He's at CARB. You can follow him on Twitter at Reichenthal, and of course, Brett at Brett Rocket Psy, all together at once. Of course, uh, so thank you so much. And we look forward to reading the book and sharing that with our kids and, of course, other folks around the world. And I, please stay in the green room because I got an idea for you that we'll talk about. Okay. In a little thank bit. you very much, guys. Thanks. Hey, thanks. thanks a lot for being on the show. Happy Friday. Amazing to see all of you. Okay. Thank you thank so you. much. Great, great to see oh. you as well. Thank you. That was awesome. Can you imagine? Well, uh, rhyme, graphics, what? complex topics, it's smart so cities. so stuff. The stuff you know, know, it's almost impossible. That's, so, uh, that's amazing. So we got some... Great, great conversations today. A lot of stuff going on in general. Who do we have next week? We're on episode 242, and there's some crazy folks showing up. Uh, put on your seatbelts. Get your popcorn ready for Ooh. next week because we have three truly extraordinary people and folks that I really admire and learn from on Twitter. Chris Michael, an inaugural artist in residence at the National Acad Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. He's an incredible entrepreneur and philosopher, uh, one of the best uh, photographers I know uh, on Twitter. We have Om Malik, uh, founder of GigaOm, an award-winning journalist. And um, it's likely we'll have Chris and Om uh, on at the same time because they're incredible oh, friends and collaborators. And I think they're going to riff off each other and we're going to enjoy it. So uh, it'll be a different format, I think, for next week with our first two guests. And of course, uh, a Thinkers 50 legend, uh, McGrath, professor at Columbia Business School and founder of Valise. And she's, again, an extraordinary uh, innovation, leadership, business management thinker. And so all three are remarkable people, just like the four remarkable guests we had uh, today. Ray, your closing thoughts on, you know, two CEOs, three CEOs and, and two authors <laughs> uh, for our show this week. Hey, I'm, I'm just really thankful that, uh, you know, the Disrupt TV network is, is so fun, inspirational, innovative. Uh, I'm glad everyone gets a chance to kind of connect and, and get a chance to listen to this like live. And of course, throughout the weekends on our podcast and uh, just just excited to see everyone. Um, I'm in the world of book tour. This is the pre-order book tour. And I've had a chance to like just connect with people, including you, uh, everybody out in Boston. And it's, it's just nice. And, and I think, you know, with all these you know, people had time to sit back, put their thoughts on a paper, share their ideas. And now they're just going around sharing them with everybody in person, you know, along with being online. And I think this is going to be just an exciting period uh, over the next 12 months. I, I appreciate, what about you? I appreciate your book tour. 
this is your best work to date. There's a great amount of buzz around your book. Uh, your Boston book tour, uh, the folks that were in the book tour spent an hour after you were done talking about your book. That's how I know there's a buzz. So, you know, there's just energy behind it. There's incredible um, wisdom that comes from 10,000 discussions over the last three years from some of the best and brightest representing the BT150 group. And so there's hardcore evidence-based book that speaks to the future. And I think that if you ignore the book, you put yourself at a disadvantage. So anyway, congratulations to you. I think it's going to be a phenomenal success. And uh, I'm just proud to know a, a best-selling author. So that's cool. <laughs> well, hey, everybody. Thank you for being here. It's uh, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, almost every Friday. If you've got suggestions for guests, please let us know. Always taking suggestions. We are booked out a little bit towards August, and I uh, would love to have anyone here as we pick up the fall season. So thanks a lot, everybody. Take care. Bye, everyone. Happy Friday.